face, Father, and who would walk in the Spirit. And for ourselves just now, Father, as we come to look at your word together, we pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we would be open and attentive, and we would hear together what your Holy Spirit wants to say to us through your word. Help us not to be closed, but to be attentive. And Lord, in this moment, we pray that you would come and unsheath the sword, the living word, and do your work in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, please do open back up uh, your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at verses 12 uh, down to 17, this letter addressed to the church in Pergamum. As you turn there, um, let me uh, quote uh, a quote that I heard once, and I think it's very good. It's rightly been said that living the Christian life is a lot like riding a bike. If you're not pedaling, you're either slowing down or you're going downhill. In the letter addressed to the church at Pergamum, we learn that this church was at risk of spiritually slowing down and going downhill. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at these seven letters to the seven churches that open the book of Revelation. In these letters, we see Jesus giving spiritual direction and encouragement and correction to local believers in local churches. And we know that the directions and corrections and encouragements that Jesus gives in these letters, they are to have a profound shaping influence on us. In fact, they're to have a profound shaping influence on every local church down through the years. Two weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we learned there from Jesus that we must beware leaving love behind in our pursuit of orthodoxy, faithful Christian living. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Smyrna, and we learned from Jesus that our calling is to be faithful as Christians, even when everything in front of us seems hard. And this week, in the address to the believers at Pergamum, we're going to learn about the importance of pressing on, pedaling on, and not growing slack in our fight against sin and our effort to pursue godliness. If the Ephesians were told to watch out for lovelessness, and those in Smyrna were told to watch out for persecution, those at Pergamum are told to watch out for complacency. Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum and to us this morning from this section of Scripture is this, beware spiritual complacency. It will make you stagnant. Keep pedaling, keep 
pressing on towards greater godliness and maturity. Now, this is a message we each need to hear as individuals. We can easily grow spiritually complacent and get into a kind of cruise control mindset in our Christian lives. We need to hear this encouragement from Jesus to keep pressing on. But we also need to hear this encouragement corporately as a whole church this morning. For like the church in Pergamum, we have recently experienced some encouraging renewal and growth. We've been through some hard times, but we have emerged and are in an encouraging place. But we must be really careful here corporately at Great Vic that we don't rest on our laurels and get complacent in our ongoing fight against sin and our pursuit of godliness. We don't want to become a cool place to be, a buzz church where everyone just wants to hang out. We want to be a people on fire for God, passionately pursuing godliness. Now, this call to press on from Jesus takes the form in this letter of three exhortations. In a sense, this is what pressing on well as a church and as individuals will look like. Jesus says to those at Pergamum and to us, keep listening, keep going, and keep fighting. And that is going to be the outline we worked down through this morning. So the first thing Jesus says to the church at Pergamum and to us is, if you want to avoid complacency, keep listening to my words. Keep listening with an appetite to keep learning. Keep listening with an appetite to keep learning. One of our members who is in Kenya at the moment often says, Steve, I love coming to church to learn. It will be a sad day if I come and think I've nothing left to learn. Now, this often encourages me because Yanni is in her 80s and she still comes to church hungry to learn and to grow. Well, Jesus wants his people at Pergamum to keep listening to his words with an appetite to keep learning. And we see this in a couple of places in this letter. First, we're told right at the beginning in verse 12 that these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this does not mean that Jesus has a literal sword in his hand. This description of Jesus is lifted out of chapter 1, this majestic vision of Jesus, where we read in chapter 1, verse 16, from Jesus' mouth came a two-edged sword. This is a figurative way of speaking of the efficacy and power of the words of God, the words of Jesus Christ. His word comes forth from his mouth with power. In Hebrews 4.12, we have a similar commentary. We read that the word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus' words are like a surgeon's scalpel. They cut deep, but they cut in order to heal. Jesus' words, we're told, search us. The heavenly physician searches us by his word, searching out sinful thoughts and attitudes that lead to ungodly living. He searches us by his word. Now, Jesus is described at the head of this letter like this, the one who has the the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, because he wants the believers at Pergamum to be attentive, to be open to the words he is speaking. He is saying in this introduction, I am speaking with my words of power, words that are searching, words that get things done. You need to be sitting up and listening. Jesus has important encouragements to give to his people, some important corrections to make for his people, and he wants them to be attentive and hungry to hear. Complacent Christians are dull of hearing. They're not hungry to hear the word of Christ anymore because they've got complacent. They just come to church, listen to the sermon, hope it's not too long, and they get out of there and go on their way. Now, the second way we see in this introduction to the letter that Jesus desires for the people to be attentive is in this refrain that we have heard already, in the other letters, in verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, highlighted in this letter is the power of Christ's word. And then once again, this refrain, this exhortation, make sure you are listening personally and longing for the Spirit to speak to you through these words of Christ. Jesus says to a church at risk of complacency, you've got to sit up and pay attention to my words. Don't get lazy with this. And I just want to ask, right at the outset of this message, are you listening attentive to the words of Christ? Are you listening, not just on Sunday, but tomorrow through to Saturday and until we meet again, God willing, next week. Are you a person who in your day-to-day life are open, hungry to hear, attentive to what God is speaking to you through the Spirit, through His Word? Now, hear what I'm not asking. I'm not just asking, are you reading your Bible? There's a world of difference 
between just reading your Bible as a chore and reading with a hunger in your heart to hear the Spirit speak to you. A world of difference. Are you hungry to hear God's voice as He ministers through His Word? The Spirit unsheathing the sword and making the Word live to you. Live. It comes alive as you read. It does something in your life. Do you not want that? How many times have we read without reading? Read without listening? Read without even an expectation for God to speak to us in a wonderful way through His Word? Are you reading your Bible and asking the Spirit to minister to you to give you the secret manna for your soul? Or have you just been in complacency world for a long time? One of my favorite authors, the late Jerry Bridges, has stated, there is absolutely no shortcut to holiness that bypasses or gives little priority to a consistent intake of the Bible. God's Word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. So right at the head of this letter, I think the message is loud and clear. Jesus is saying to the believers in Pergamum and to us, keep listening with a hungry attentiveness to my powerful words. The second exhortation Jesus gives then is this lovely encouragement to the believers and to us to just keep going, keep persevering. That is, keep walking by faith and not by sight. Keep trusting me. In verse 13, Jesus speaks this lovely word of commendation to the saints in Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Here again, we see these really encouraging two words that we've seen in the other letters. Jesus speaking to a beleaguered, weary people saying, I know. Jesus is saying here to those in Pergamum and to us, I know the context in which you're trying to be faithful. I know your context. I know what your marriage is like, or I know what your singleness is like. I know what life's like for you at home as you try to be a faithful Christian. I know what your context is like at school and at university. I know what your context is like in your workplace. I know all your colleagues. I know how you feel afraid. I know the intimidation. I know the exhaustion. I know all about it. I know the challenges that come for you in your specific context. Twice in verse 13, Jesus says to his people that he knows that they're living in the place where Satan is, where Satan's throne is. Now, I want to just think about this for a moment, because this may refer to the fact that Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple for emperor worship. 
It was one of the leading centers for this idolatrous practice in the Roman Empire, worshiping the Caesar as a divine Lord, saying Caesar is Lord. Pergamum was a center for this, and that may well be one of the reasons why Jesus is saying, I know all about your context where Satan is right in the midst of all that pagan immorality. But I think this actually is Jesus speaking more generally than that. And I want to take a moment to explain what I mean. Paul um, refers to this present age that we are in as the present evil age in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. So since the fall fallenness and sin has entered into this age. We are living in a cursed, fallen world, an age that will eventually die away. In 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is referred to as the small g god of this age. In Ephesians 2.2, he is called the prince of the power of the air, the one who governs this world of fallenness. So in many ways, this fallen world is the place where Satan dwells. In Revelation 12, we will actually read of Satan being thrown down to the earth, and there he will make his home. The coming of Christ then, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we could say was an inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this present evil age. This was the age to come, the kingdom breaking forward into the present evil age in Jesus. That's why he said, the kingdom has come in me, in my coming into the world. This is the kingdom of God breaking into this present evil age. We say that the coming of Christ was the inauguration of the, the kingdom of God. It was the beginning of God's kingdom coming on earth. And so the kingdom has come already, but we know it hasn't yet come in all its fullness. That day awaits when Jesus will return. We know that now sin has already been defeated by Jesus, death on the cross and his resurrection, but we do not yet see the fullness of that victory. We have, we're told, the first fruits of the Spirit, but not yet the fullness of the Spirit that we will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth. And so we can say that we live in the already, not yet. We live in the kingdom of God. We've been transferred out of the present evil age into Christ's kingdom, and yet we still live here in this fallen world. We already live in the kingdom, but we still live in this world of fallenness. This means we are a people living for the kingdom of God, living salt and light lives in Satan's backyard. We are a people of the kingdom on a mission to see people transferred out of the domain of darkness, the present evil age, and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And Jesus is saying to those in Pergamum, I know the context in which you're trying to be faithful. A fallen world. 
a place where Satan is. And this means it's a place where there are unseen spiritual forces at work trying to make living for the kingdom hard. Last week, we saw Jesus saying that Satan was stirring up persecution for the believers in Smyrna. And it sounds very much like he's been doing something similar at Pergamum. For here in chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus speaks of this man named Antipas, whom he calls my faithful witness. And Jesus says, even when persecution came to the level amongst you at Pergamum, where your friend Antipas was put to death, you all kept going. You held fast to my name. You didn't deny the faith. Jesus is commanding the believers at Pergamum. And he's saying, you've kept going when the going was really tough, even when you saw people dying for the sake of honoring Christ. It has been tough. Satan had been attacking, lying, trying to devour the believer's faith. But Jesus says, you've held fast to my name. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying that to encourage the believers at Pergamum to keep going. And he says that to us too. Keep going. I know the context in which you're trying to be faithful to me. There are hardships. There is There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Don't forget that. The pressure's on. Your goal is to remain faithful. I love the name that Jesus gives to Antipas there in verse 13. Antipas. My faithful witness. Wouldn't it be lovely if Jesus was able to put our name in there and say, your name, I know, my faithful witness. Standing firm, holding fast to my name when they've been going through really hard things. I think we can take encouragement from this, that Jesus does know our names. He does know the context in which we've been trying to be faithful. He knows some of the hardships we've been through. He knows them all. But I think the application we can draw from this section where Jesus is encouraging the believers to keep going and keep being faithful, I think it's simply this. Let's make it our goal to be Jesus' faithful witnesses, just where he's placed us. Do not underestimate the power of a steady, faithful witness at home, amongst your family, in front of your children, and with your colleagues at work. Don't underestimate the power of a steady, faithful witness in front of your unbelieving children. You know, as well as I do, it can be hardest to speak of the gospel to those closest to us. 
Will you keep going? Faithful witness. Through the way you live, most of your kids will know what you believe in. They'll know the gospel that you have explained to them. But you just stay faithful, keep praying, keep just trying to be a good witness to them. When opportunities come, carefully take them. Pray for God to raise up others who may be in a better position even to speak to your children than you. But keep going. Keep being faithful, especially you parents with young children, maybe doing family devotions, maybe praying for your kids. You just think you're disciplining and fighting a a never-ending battle. Just keep going. Steady, faithful witness. My faithful witness. Maybe in your workplace this week, you need to reframe how you think about your job. You've got colleagues around you, people who you're working with. They don't know Jesus. They're still in the present evil age, blinded by Satan. You're there as salt and light. You're calling to be a steady, faithful witness. That means working with integrity, being careful with your words, being someone who's honest, being careful to avoid the gossip culture, being careful to avoid a kind of critical spirit. Trying to be salt and light, the positive presence of the kingdom, just where God has placed you. It's no accident that God has put you where he's put you, with your neighbors, with your colleagues. You're calling to work well, absolutely. But also to recognize that your higher calling is continually to be Christ's faithful witness. So keep going, walking by faith, not by sight. So Jesus has said to those in Pergamum, to a people at risk of becoming complacent, keep listening. Keep persevering as a faithful witness. And now thirdly and finally, he says, keep fighting. That is, keep waging war against sin and worldliness. After this opening encouragement and commendation comes some correction in verse 14 for this church. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, this is a reference to an event in the Old Testament from the book of Numbers. A king named Balak saw the Israelites approaching on his territory. He was afraid that they were going to invade, and so he pays to recruit a diviner named Balaam to come and put a curse on Israel. This doesn't work because God blocks the curse. But later on in Numbers chapter 31, we learn that Balaam tried to cause the Israelites to stumble by another way. He incited local Moabite women to go into the Israelite camp to seduce their men and to lead them into sexual immorality and the worship of false idols. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter speaks of those who are drifting away from the true gospel. He says they are those who follow the way of Balaam. They love gain from wrongdoing. 
So Jesus says, I have something against you. There are some who are they're following the way of Balaam. They're following the teaching of Balaam. There seems to be a group of believers in Pergamum who are following the way of Balaam. That is compromising their Christian convictions for the sake of some financial gain. You see, in Pergamum, there were what we could call trade guilds or trade clubs. These are different groups. Imagine your employer gathering together all your staff and saying in the first century, right, we're going to have a meeting, and because we want the gods to bless us, we're going to burn some incense and offer some little sacrifices to the gods so that they'll bless us today in our work. That kind of thing was happening, and the believers, it would have been very awkward for them to say, well, listen, I don't want anything to do with worshiping idols and making sacrifices to idols. I'm going to opt out of that. But imagine that, what that would have felt like. You would have felt, imagine you're doing that at your workplace. You're gathered as a staff to just do a simple little thing. Let's just burn an incense to this God that'll help us. And everyone agrees, but you feel you can't do it because it would dishonor the Lord. You would feel like, oh, I'm going to look, I'm going to, it's going to be really awkward. They're going to think that I'm weird. I might not even advance in my career because of stepping out of this moment. It would be awkward. It would be uncomfortable. That's the reality that, uh, that was going on in Pergamum. But it seems like some of the Christians were compromising their Christian convictions and participating in the idolatry so that they could avoid coming across as strange and avoid missing out on career advancement. The equivalent today might be something like your employer asking you to support Pride Week by requiring you to wear a rainbow lanyard. And your conscience tells you, I don't want to do that because of what that could communicate. But you go along with it because you don't want to ruffle any feathers and you feel smitten in your conscience because of it. We all know the story of Asher's Bakery and the stand they took and how it was met with ostracism in the culture. Another modern-day equivalent might be like a midwife being asked to participate in putting an unborn baby to death. And that midwife, not wanting to cause any upset or get into any trouble, just starts to justify it. Well, maybe it's not quite putting a baby to death. Maybe I could help in some way. But they're compromising their Christian convictions for the sake of some gain. The point here is Jesus is saying, there are some among you who are compromising to get on in the world. And Jesus says, I don't like this. I have this against you. Don't do this. I think this is an important exhortation for us. We must know the moral lines that we will not cross and stand by them. Balaam had no convictions in the book of Numbers. He was just driven by financial gain. But as Christians, we are not driven by financial gain, ever. We're driven by living for the values of the kingdom to which we belong. You don't for a minute step out of the kingdom of Christ into the kingdom of the present evil age and start to act like those of the kingdom of the present evil age. That's called sin. 
So let's ask ourselves, might there be ways in which we are compromising our kingdom convictions for some kind of worldly gain? Let's stop doing this. Let's confess our sins and look to God for more grace to stand firm. Not standing firm in an obnoxious way, but in a gracious, humble, and yet firm way. In verse 16, very briefly, Jesus says another thing he has against them at Pergamum is is they have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we saw this also referred to in the letter to the Ephesians, so we'll not spend much time on it. But Jesus spoke against this group um, because there was some kind of unorthodox teaching that was contrary to the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Jesus said, not only are there some people in Pergamum who have compromised their convictions and they are living ungodly lives in the world, there are some in Pergamum who are holding unorthodox doctrines. And I do not like this. I have this against you, Jesus says. But here's what I want us to really see now at the end of the charges Jesus brings before the church. Notice. He is addressing the whole church at Pergamum when he speaks of these things he has against the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's think about it together. He said in Pergamum to the whole church in this letter, you have groups among you, people who are not living fully under the lordship of Christ. You have people in your church who are openly sinning, in the world. You have people who hold teaching that does not match your statement of gospel doctrine. And as a church, you're not doing anything about it. I think Jesus here is calling the believers at Pergamum to wake up and recognize their calling to practice church discipline. You see, when members of local churches are openly living in sinful ways or are openly embracing false doctrines and when church leaders do nothing about it, that is grieving Jesus Christ. Jesus has given churches, local churches, the responsibility to care for one another and to preserve the public witness of the church through church discipline. This involves the effort to correct errant living and errant believing. And if that effort to graciously and humbly correct that errant member is battered away, then eventually the church can gather with authority from Jesus to exercise the keys of the kingdom. That is, the church can gather and say, we're going to vote now to withdraw this person's membership. They will not be welcome to come to the Lord's table We are practicing church discipline here because this person is openly living a life that is contrary to the word of Christ, openly holding teaching that is damaging, and and we're not going to sweep it under the mat. We're going to deal with it. Jesus was taking the church at Pergamum to task because as a whole, they were tolerating sins they shouldn't have tolerated. They were sweeping sin under the mat rather than graciously dealing with sin in the camp. Now, how many churches at Northern Ireland are guilty of 
doing that. We don't want to cause an upset. We don't want to cause a big scene. So we'll just leave it. And for years, festered, open sin goes uncorrected. That grieves Jesus. That grieves Jesus. And is that not what this text says? I have this against you. You're tolerating sin in the camp. Cut it out! And look at what Jesus says if you don't do something about this. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's Jesus saying if you don't do something about this at Pergamum, I myself will come in some form of judgment to deal with it. If you don't deal with the sin, I will. That's solemn. That's Jesus exercising in time judgment. And so we here at Great Vic, we've got to take this as instructive. It's very difficult. It's very hard. But we've got to take really seriously. If you're a member of this church, you have certain obligations. To live a godly life to believe the gospel doctrinal statement that we have here as a church. And you're called to take that seriously. As a church, we are called to look out for one another. There shouldn't be members' names on the rolls, people who are openly sinning or who are believing different things, and they just stay there. No, we have to work together to preserve the purity of the whole church. This is why we try to take seriously the practice of church discipline here at Great Vic. And I've found this salutary through the week to just remember again the mandate from Jesus, that if there are members that are hiding, and they're living wrong lives, and they're they're believing wrong things, but they're just hiding because they don't want anyone to know about it. They don't come to the Lord's table because they don't think they can, and they're just hiding away, and yet their names are on the membership rolls. Jesus calls us to work hard to take seriously the call to working to keep the church pure. Now, we know that none of us are living perfect lives out in the world. We know that we don't want to set a bar here so high that no one can become a member of the church and no one can feel comfortable. And we all stumble in many ways. Yes, but there's a world of difference between stumbling and struggling and fighting against sin and just openly giving way to it. So then comes the exhortation right after this in verse 17. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That says, listen carefully to this and take heed. So let's, at Great Vic, take seriously this call of Christ to us individually. Are you becoming complacent with the sin that dwells within you? Are you just comfortably cohabiting with sin rather than fighting to kill sin? Keep fighting against the sin struggles you have. Keep fighting. 
But at a corporate level, let's take this also seriously. Let's work hard to keep fighting sin, to upholding pure doctrine, to watch out for the corporate witness of this church in a watching world. Well, after all of that then, Jesus closes here giving some closing promises, and I'll move through these very quickly. Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, all of these promises at the end of the letters refer to the promise of entrance into eternal life. So though this is a bit cryptic, the hidden manna and the white stone, we know that in some way this speaks of a promise of entering into eternal life with Jesus in heaven. I think we can make sense of some of this. In John 6, Jesus said he was the true manna from heaven who came down to give life to the world. And he said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The secret manna is the eternal life that Jesus gives. We taste of it now already, but not yet in its fullness. When we are with Jesus, we will feast on the hidden manna that nourishes our soul, the eternal life that there is for us in Christ. White stones, what do they signify? Well, they were used in the ancient world as a token of admission in the ancient world, like a ticket that would get you into a concert. They were also used when juries in a court of law voted. They would hold up the black stone for a guilty verdict and the white stone for an innocent verdict. The name written on the stone in the context of Revelation is almost certainly the name of Jesus. So this white stone with the name of Jesus written on it, it's actually a beautiful picture. It represents the final vindication, justification, the final vindication of a believer. Not guilty. White stone, not a black stone. Here is what gives you entrance into the new heavens and new earth. Being white in the righteousness of Christ. And I think it's beautiful that the name of Jesus is written on this stone. What grants you access to the new heavens and new earth? Nothing but the name of Jesus. He makes you white. He's your vindication. He's your justification. He alone is your entrance into life. Christ, the bread of life. Christ, our righteousness. And this beautiful picture is given to reinforce the main point of this letter. Believers at Pergamum, believers at Great Vic, keep pedaling. Don't compromise. Don't hit cruise control. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on and being attentive and listening to Christ's words. Keep persevering in your workplace, in your context, even when it's challenging and it feels like you're getting nowhere. Keep fighting against sin. Keep fighting against worldliness. Keep fighting against the temptation to just cozy up with compromise rather than confronting sin. Keep going. When I came to this church to preach before I was called as pastor, I remember encouraging you all at the end of my message as a church to keep going. I don't know if many people were there. That was over, I think, eight years ago now. 
And I stepped off my notes and I just looked out at the church that was gathered there eight years ago and I, I just said, keep going. Keep going. Great Vic, keep going. And then I said these words, I firmly believe God is not finished with this church yet. And in that moment, I experienced a call to come to Great Vic. And this is the same message that I want to close with this morning in light of Christ's letter to Pergamum. Great Vic, let's, let's keep going. Let's keep pressing on towards greater godliness. Let's keep listening attentively to Christ's word. Let's keep persevering and encouraging one another as a whole body. And let's keep fighting against sin and worldliness so that we can pursue godliness. I firmly believe God is not finished with this church yet. So in closing, let's ask ourselves some questions. I want you to ask yourself this just now. What has the Spirit been saying to me through this message this morning? Is there any encouragement that I'm to receive from Christ through those words, I know your context, keep going? Is there anything I need to confess and repent of? Well, let's remember again that closing promise and encouragement, the hidden manna, the provision of life, the access to the new heavens and new earth. It's found in Christ alone. You know, this message is a sort of message that might beat you up a wee bit, might make you feel pretty heavy, but isn't there hope in that promise? What in the end gets you home? Yes, fighting sin. Yes, taking church discipline seriously. Yes, pressing on. But what in the end gets you home? The name of Jesus. So let's look again to him. And let's find in him the grace we need to press on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just sit under your word and under this direction of Jesus. Keep listening, keep going, keep fighting. Lord, we feel often so weak. Forgive us our sins and remind us again of that righteousness and hope that is in Christ alone because there the burden of the guilt is just all lifted away and we stand righteous in him. And as we respond now and rightly gather around the Lord's table, the only worthy manner we come in is holding up the name of Christ and saying, he alone is my righteousness. He permits us access to come. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and prepare our hearts to share the Lord's Supper together. Uh, the bread and the wine are at the back there. If, you didn't, if you're planning to share in the Lord's Supper and you didn't take the bread and the wine on the way in, uh, please, for, through the first part of this hymn, uh, nip back and get that. Um, at Great Vic, if you know and love Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're a member of good standing with your local church, you're welcome to share in this meal of remembrance with us. Uh, if you know and love Jesus, uh, do share in this with us. 
if you're here and you're not a believer and you can't share in this time, um, just take a moment to reflect. Observe what's going on and think and ask yourself, what's holding me back from trusting in this Jesus? As we prepare our hearts, we'll stand together. We'll sing uh, this lovely communion hymn, Behold the Lamb. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.